At Calvary 316, we teach expositionally. We go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through books of the Bible. Presently, uh, we left off last Sunday, Acts 23, verse 24. We'll start this morning, Acts 23, verse 25. One of the drawbacks to expositional teaching is this, if this is your first Sunday with us or you haven't been with us in a few Sundays, you might not be up to speed. So we kind of have to start a little bit by getting a running head start, but we can't recap everything we've been looking at. So just to kind of ease our way into the text, last Sunday, we noticed that things have gone from bad to worse for the Apostle Paul. Not only is he presently There, Jerusalem, the fortress of Antonio, in a cell of his own making. But an assassination plot has been hatched by a group of 40 Jewish assassins determined to kill him. Fearing for the life of Paul, who was a Roman citizen under his protection, the commander of the fortress of Antonio, a a man by the name of Claudius Lysias, rightly concluded that things were too hot, it was too dangerous to leave Paul in Jerusalem. He needed to get him out of the city. He needed to protect his life. So the plan, as we looked at, was to bring Paul, to send Paul to Felix, the governor, who is presently located in the coastal city of Caesarea. To ensure Paul's safety, Claudius kind of goes above and beyond what might even be necessary. Forty assassins, so Claudius prepares a detail to send along with Paul of 470 trained Roman soldiers. We're told that there are 200 footmen, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, just to protect Paul as he makes his way from Jerusalem to Caesarea. And then he sends them out, sends the detail, we're told, the third hour of the night. Now, in order to explain to Felix why this man, this Jewish rabbi, was being sent to him with such a protective detail, Claudius, as we're about to see, pins a letter kind of explaining the events of the last few days. So, verse 25, he wrote a letter in the following manner. Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor, Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him discerning of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him farewell. Now on the surface, Luke's inclusion of Claudius's letter makes complete sense, doesn't it? Acts. Our whole premise is that the book of Acts, along with the gospel of Luke, were to be presented as a defense brief. The gospel of Luke explaining the origins of Christianity, the development of Christianity, the book of Acts explaining the spread of Christianity, and then more specifically, Paul's role in the process. So as a defense brief presented on Paul's behalf, including Claudius's letter, it was smart because it would benefit Paul. If you notice that Claudius Lysias, who is the arresting agent, the man on the ground, 
he states very clearly, notice it, that Paul had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. The arresting agent, the cop on hand, affirms really that Paul was innocent. And yet, what does make Luke's inclusion of this letter to me so fascinating is how revisionist Claudius' facts are to the narrative that Luke's already given us. Let me give you an example of this. Claudius, in his letter, he explains that, quote, he rescued Paul. Why? Having learned that he was a Roman. And yet, if you recall, according to Luke's account of the narrative, of the story, Claudius had initially acted because he believed Paul was someone else that he was this most wanted Egyptian revolutionary, and that it was only after he had bound Paul, planned to scourge Paul to interrogate him, that he learned of his Roman citizenship. Interesting discrepancy. So why would Luke, our author, intentionally include Claudius's letter when it produced what's on the surface a contradictory account? I think there are two reasons for this. We're not going to spend too much time on them, but food for thought. First, Luke is a historian, and as a historian, he's not afraid of the truth. He's not afraid of this contradiction. He recounts the events as they are. He can't help that Claudius, and part of his official record, distorts some of the facts to his benefit. Luke is not afraid of that. He's going to record the facts, he's not going to admit things, and he's going to plan that whoever's in charge of the case, through eyewitness testimony, and collaboration is going to be able to ascertain that Luke's narrative is true and that Claudius has embellished a little bit. So as a historian, Luke's not afraid of the truth. Secondly, Luke has no incentive to lie when Claudius had great incentive. It was illegal to bound a Roman citizen, to incarcerate a Roman citizen without charge. So while we can understand why Claudius would kind of cook the books, so to speak, to make it appear that he was acting in the interest of a Roman citizen, Luke doesn't shy away from the truth. He records things as they are, and he'll let the chips fall. Verse 31, then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipas. The next day, they left the horsemen to go on with him, returned to the barracks. And when they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read the letter, he asked what province Paul was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's Petroleum. Now, as we've been doing in our travels through Acts, let's kind of start with a bit of the motion of the text, just kind of wrapping our, our brain around the picture. Paul and this incredible detail. They leave Jerusalem, the third hour of the night, the cover of darkness, heading towards the coastal city of Caesarea. It's about 65 miles. Once they arrive at the halfway point, Antipas, because the most treacherous part of the journey has concluded, the part of the journey that an ambush was most likely, we're told that they send the horsemen back to Jerusalem, proceeding onward to Caesarea with only a detail of 200 footmen and 200 spearmen. Now, upon their arrival... As the flow of our story goes, Paul and the letter arrive. They're presented before Governor Felix, who, when he had read the letter, asked Paul what province he's from. He's wanting to make sure that he has jurisdiction over the matter, that 
as a citizen. He's living under the areas, under his control. He finds out, indeed, he does, Paul being from Cilicia. So he commands for Paul to be kept in Herod's Petroleum, which is a nice place, as they waited for his accusers to arrive to present their arguments. Now, real quickly, let's profile Marcus Antonius Felix. Felix is a unique character because he was born originally into slavery. However, as history tells us, as the result of his friendship, a childhood friendship with Claudius Caesar, he was not only freed from his slavery, but became the Roman governor of the Judean province serving from 52 to 58 AD. This is according to Roman history. Note, historically, what makes Felix so unique in particular is that he's the first born slave to have ever ascended the ranks to the notable position of governor. Roman historian Tacitus, he writes that, quote, Felix indulged in every kind of cruelty and immorality, wielding, we're told, a king's authority with all the instincts of a slave. Beyond the iron fist in which he reigned, this historian also includes that Felix thought he could do any evil act with impunity, backed up as he was by such power. Keep in mind, Felix is not a good guy. He is a brutal, immoral man. Well, we're told that after five days, chapter 24, verse 1, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders, and a certain order named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. Now, let me set the scene for you. We have kind of a Perry Mason-esque trial that's going to take place here. Felix is the judge and the jury. Since Paul has not been charged with a crime, Ananias and the elders come from Jerusalem to Caesarea with a specific intention, and Claudius had mentioned this in his letter, to present evidence against Paul. Now, to help make their case, these men of power employed the services of a certain order named Tertullus, who, as we're playing the scene out, would act as the prosecuting attorney. Well, when he was called upon, verse 2, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, so here's his opening, seeing that through you, speaking to Felix, we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always and in all places, most notable Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by our courtesy a few words from us. Man, the guy's good, isn't he? I mean, he's waxing poetic. Now, Tertullus begins his accusation with this diatribe, hoping to do what? He's buttering up Felix, right? Through fat flattery. <laughs> the problem with the flattery is that everyone there, including Felix, knew that everything coming out of his mouth wasn't true. I mean, it was flattery based entirely on a lie. They didn't like Felix. As a matter of fact, the Jews hated Roman rule 
and they had even more animus towards Felix. He had not categorically brought any peace to the region, nor had he brought any type of prosperity. It would appear that referring to him as most notable was even more than Felix could handle. Like even Felix kind of threw up in his mouth a little bit. Like really, you're going a little overboard. As a matter of fact, it would appear from the way that the Greek text lays things out that something kind of happens in the middle of Tertullus' presentation that causes him to quickly abandon the flattery and just get to the point. Notice, nevertheless, not to be tedious. I'm of the opinion that as he, as most notable is rolling off his tongue, that Felix kind of rolls his eyes. Like, give me a break. Like, you're wasting my time, you're wasting your time, everything, you're, you hate my guts. Let's just get on with the point. So he continues, verse 5. For we have found this man a plague. That's not very nice. A creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. And a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple. And we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law, but the commander, Lysias, came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. This is also a bit revisionist. Therefore, by examining him yourself, you, Felix, may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. Now, Tertullus presents four fundamental accusations against the Apostle Paul. First, he says, we have found that this man, Paul, he's a plague. Like, I, I kind of like the way that, like that's kind of a backhanded compliment, really. What, what they're accusing Paul of is it wasn't just the reality that Paul had proved to be fanatical. That was so alarming. It wasn't that he was just really passionate about these things that really irked him. It was the fact that his fanaticism and his passion had proved to be contagious. You know, it's hard to infect someone with a disease that you're not infected with yourself. And the accusation here is he's a plague. He got infected with this thing and he's been going around infecting everybody else. Secondly, notice that they accuse Paul as being a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout all the world. This phrase, creator of dissension, is translated, I think, more accurately in the King James Version as a mover of sedition. In a sense, Tertullus was attributing Paul's actions over the last 20 years as being the sole singular reason for Jewish insurrection and unrest that was taking place throughout all the world. And at this point, throughout all the world, the Jews and the Romans were clashing. This will reach ahead about a decade from here when Roman armies fled into Jerusalem and wiped the city clean, destroying the temple. A group fled to Masada, this plateaued fortress, Vespasian has to build a ramp up to the city. Took them years. They finally get there. And all the Jews kill themselves. It's just like things are moving to an element of tragedy. 
But what is he doing here? He's saying that the reason why all of this unrest is happening across the world between Jews and Romans, it's simple. It's that guy. Like he is the sole reason we're having problems. Thirdly, they accuse Paul of being a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, literally. He accuses Paul of being the leader of the sect, or literally heresy, started by a Nazarene, which, on a side note, had become a title that had been used by the religious Jews concerning Jesus. They didn't want to call him Jesus Christ because they didn't believe he was the Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth was a mouthful, so they just called him the Nazarene. Not only that, but they don't refer to Christians as Christians. They call them, you know, those of the sect of the Nazarenes because to say the word Christian would be to include Christ, which would affirm the Messiah, and that was more than they could say. So they accused Paul of being a ringleader, of being a central core figure. And finally, they accused Paul of trying to profane the temple. This word profane, or biblio, means to desecrate. Now, note, the accusation stated that Paul only tried to profane the temple. It wasn't that he was accomplished in his aim, but that it was his attempt to do so that demanded they act. As a matter of fact, this last accusation, to truly is his last point, is designed to provide a justification for why the Jews had erupted in the temple in the way that they had, why they had seized him, desiring to judge him according to their law. So Tertullius is trying to pigeonhole, provide a defense in his accusation for their activities as well. Now understand something about this whole court case. Tertullius, his case against Paul, the problem with it is that he (laughs) had no case. He knows he doesn't have a case. The Jews know he doesn't have a case. Paul knows he doesn't have a case. He doesn't have a case. He's arguing a case where he doesn't have any evidence. It's all hearsay. Paul had committed no crime worthy of Roman punishment. And Tertullius knew that he could present no evidence to the contrary. And yet, his approach is very tactful and I think kind of brilliant. It's masterful. Though he has no evidence to validate his position, Tertullius, his accusations were designed to present Paul, to cast Paul in a negative light that would have alarmed the Romans. That Paul and all of his activity was a threat to Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, something the Romans took very seriously. It's as though Tertullius is telling Felix that since Paul was a threat to peace, but there wasn't enough evidence to convict him of this fact, of this crime, his argument is that it would be wise to allow the Jews to judge him according to their law. So he's a threat to Pax Romana, to peace. You're not gonna get him on that crime, but take my word for it, which is why you should, you should allow us to judge him according to Jewish law. Get out of the process. Let us take Paul and deal with him as we see. Verse 10, then Paul after the governor nodded to him to speak, answered, And as much as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation. <laughs> There's no flattery there. It's like, yeah, I know you've been a judge for a while. 
I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. Understanding the tactic of the prosecution, Paul begins his defense by addressing the accusation that he had done something worthy of judgment according to Jewish law. Okay, you can't get me as an offender of Roman law, they're going to try to get me in regards to being an offender of Jewish law. But don't buy into it, Felix, because I've done nothing wrong. In response to the claim that he, quote, tried to profane the temple, Paul points here in his defense to the obvious lack of evidence or eyewitness testimony. Not only could they not prove the things of which they accused him, but the event in question and it only occurred 12 days ago. His point is like, it's not even been a month. Like it would be very easy for them to have brought with them anyone, just one person to present evidence. Paul is clear that he went up to Jerusalem for what purpose? To worship. Not to dispute with anyone, not to incite the crowd, which were the things they were accusing him of doing. He continues... Verse 14, but this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense towards God and men. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with a tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me, or else let those who are here themselves say, if they have found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council, unless it is for the one statement which I cried out standing among them concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. Now, after addressing the accusation of committing a crime worthy of punishment under Jewish law, which Paul's like, I've done nothing guilty of Jewish law. Paul then addresses the notion that he's been acting contrary to Roman law. Now, look at it again. He says, this I confess. You need a confession, Felix? I'm not going to confess to the things that they're accusing me of, but I will admit that according to the way which these jokers call a sect. So I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Now, the reason that Tertullus referred to the way, which is, a, which is a, 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 the very first uh, term that was used to describe the followers of Jesus, not having really a, a term to define them or describe them, knowing that Jesus had had said in John, right, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those following Jesus, they just called followers of the way, which I love, because that tells us that Christianity is not just a set of ideas. It's not just a set of theological positions. And not, it's not just a philosophy of life. It is a way of living. It's the way. But the reason he defines or pigeons this movement by calling it a sect 
was to do something, I think, very shrewd. Knowing he's got no case against Paul, Tertullus tries to separate Christianity from Judaism. And let me explain why he tries to do this. Because the Romans allowed the Jews the freedom to worship according to Jewish law. It was something that they had already ruled on, already permitted. As long Hebrew people, as you pay your taxes and don't revolt, will allow you to worship God the way you want to. You can rule according to Jewish law. You can read your holy books. You can have your temple. Go for it. The Romans had already ruled and already given the Jews permission that their religion was legal. Now, if Tertullus could somehow present Christianity as being a heretical movement, maybe it could be deemed unlawful. Because it's not under the the banner of Judaism. It's this sect. It's this heresy, meaning the Romans hadn't ruled, which means that they don't have the freedom to worship in the way that they want, with at least not having their case uh, presented before Caesar. Now, why Paul could not argue against the reality that his teachings had fostered unrest within Jewish communities across the Roman world. It is true, he was a plague, he was a ringleader, he was stirring up unrest. The first three accusations are somewhat accurate. He can't argue against reality, that he was turning the world upside down. But he does here in the text we read, counter the notion that the way was illegal by showing how their beliefs were in actuality consistent with the Jewish faith, Judaism. Look at it again. Paul's emphatic that he not only worships whom? The God of whom? His fathers. But that his belief structure, his belief system was based entirely where? Not just on the teachings of Jesus, but on the law and the prophets, the Hebrew Holy Scriptures. He even points to the fact that he came to the temple for what purpose? To bring alms and offerings to his nation. And that Jews from Asia actually found him in the temple, how? Purified. He presents these things as evidence that in no way has he ever been acting contrary to Judaism. Paul's point was that his beliefs did not violate the tenets of Judaism and were completely consistent with Scripture. Therefore, while his actions may have caused unrest among Jewish communities, it caused unrest not because the things he taught were illegal or contradictory. It's just that they didn't like him. Now, before we continue, I am struck by something Paul does say in the middle of this rebuttal. Did you notice it? Did it jump off the page to you as it did me? Paul says that his conscience was without offense towards God and men. Think about that for a moment. Think about that statement in context to who this man was. Like, don't forget, Paul, at one point in his life, was murdering Christians. And yet now, he's able to say that his conscience is clean, that it's clear. You know, I bring this up because for many of us who have made mistakes, many of us who have failed, who have fallen short, 
Many of us who, who have, have done nothing but just prove that we're really able sinners. We're good at that. This righteousness thing, I'm not very good at. But the sinning thing, I got that down. Like I was kind of born with that propensity. For many of us today, Jesus has done a work in our lives. We've, we've met him, he, the resurrected Christ. He's changed us from the inside. For many of us, we still carry though, guilt, don't we? Do you? Conviction. Yes, what you, what you did might have been in ignorance. What you did might, might have been uh, done in such a way that you didn't know necessarily right for, maybe you did. But Paul could say, like, I don't know what you've done, but you haven't killed anyone. Maybe. But even if you have, you're still included, because that's what Paul had done. That Paul could say, and that the Holy Spirit, by including it in Scripture, would testify that his conscience was clear, that he didn't carry around this condemnation or this guilt. And how could he let go of those things? How could Paul live with a clean conscience? He had experienced God's amazing love and his sufficient grace. That he was able to stand as a new man in Christ Jesus, looking back and saying, that dude is not this one. The old man has passed away. All things have become new. I don't need to carry that burden any longer because Jesus has set me free. You know, in Hebrews, we're told that to run the race, we're to lay aside weight and sin. The things that'll slow us down. Sin, that makes sense. But what about this weight that so restricts us, that so hinders us? I think in a lot of ways, it's guilt. It's guilt. Understand, the only reason you feel guilty is because Satan is declaring your condemnation, not God. That the devil sings his age-old song and beats his condemnation drum. But Jesus has already paid for those sins. He's wiped them clean. He's purified you. You are no longer that person. When God sees you, he doesn't see any of that anymore. But when Felix heard these things, Having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul, but to let him have liberty. Told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. Felix wants to hear from Claudius, so he defers. He's going to wait till Lysias can come they can have a powwow. They can discuss these things in private. He's going to wait until he issues a ruling. David Guzik describes Felix's approach here as being, quote, a cowardly dodge. It's true. Now, notice, though, what Felix did take away from the whole proceedings, because I think it's very telling. Of all the things he took away, we're told that he had, quote, a more accurate knowledge of the way. Once again, while Paul may have been on trial, Tertullus had used the opportunity, knowing he had no case against Paul, to question the legalities of Christianity. And it's my belief, and I'll just repeat it again, that as a result of this approach by Tertullus, while now under house arrest, we'll see for two years, 
Paul commissions his dear friend Luke to compile documents they could use in defense of Tertullius' prosecution. Gospel of Luke would show how Christianity formed from Judaism. The book of Acts would show how Christianity spread and while the Jews hated it so much. Well, after some days, verse 24, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard concerning the faith in Christ. Now, now, Drusilla, we have a new character, so let's just quickly give you a profile of her. She's the youngest daughter of Herod Agrippa I. This is the Herod who had had uh, James the first apostle beheaded. Um, he had later in this very city, Caesarea, uh, in the center of the amphitheater wearing this silver laced linen as people are crying out that he was a god, not turning away the, the, the adulation. Uh, we're told that he's struck by God and eaten by worms. That's that guy. Drusilla is his daughter. We're gonna meet her brother and, and sister next Sunday. But this woman was celebrated for her beauty. First, she was betrothed to a man named Epiphanes with one condition. Epiphanes had to become a Jew. He was a Gentile. He had to become a Jew if he wanted to marry Drusilla. However, when he's reading through the fine print and he comes to discover that that would include circumcision, he's like, you're a beautiful woman, but I'm out. Later, she then gets married off to another guy, Yada, yada, yada. As things progress, Felix comes by, check his, checks her out, like, you're, you're a babe. You should ditch your husband. You should forget about your religion. You should come to Caesarea and, and hang out with me, to which she obliges, mainly because it was a political maneuver and a step up for her. At this point, mind, mind you, even with all that history, uh, it's believed that she's about 18 years old. This all started when she was 13. Now, let's set the scene. Paul, he's under house arrest. He's got freedom. He has liberty. Felix and Drusilla come to him. And what do they desire? We don't know how, what prompted it, what happened. Could have been one of those nights where they were kicking back on the royal cushions, flipping through Netflix, and they had just run out of things to power stream through. And Felix is like, well, you know what? Let's take our cocktails and let's go have Paul. He's an entertaining guy. Let's see what he has to say about this whole faith in Jesus thing. So they go. Could have been a real intrigue. Could have been an entertainment value. Either way, what we find is that these two, a brutal man and this woman, Drusilla, who's renounced her family and her religion, they're now sitting before Paul and they're like, tell us about Jesus. Wow, what an opportunity for Paul to share the gospel. Well, we're told, now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, go away <laughs> for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Now, we're not given the full account, the full transcript of Paul's sermon. But we are given his three-point outline. Good preacher has a three-point outline. We're told that he reasoned with them about righteousness. 
about what it means to be right before God. Our position before God talks to them about justification, about religion, about what it really means to be moral, about what it means to be good, how we all fall very short of this standard. Our position before God is simple. All have fallen short of the glory of God. None is good, no, not one. We reach that false conclusion because we compare ourselves with others. No doubt, Paul pointed to Jesus and said, when you compare yourself with the standard and using the law as a standard, you find that you fall short, that you're not as good as you think you are. We're told that he then reasons about self-control. Following our position before God, Paul talks about the source of power over human desire. Not only is the great news of the gospel that we're made right before God, but the great news is that then we're filled with his spirit. How do we become like Jesus? How do we become good people? How do we become sanctified, set apart? How do we deal with our tendencies, our propensities, our sinful nature? It's clear that nature is removed and a new nature is put, that this heart of stone is taken out and it's replaced by the Spirit of God, that my desires for worldliness are replaced with a desire for God and for godliness, a desire to please Him, and that then it's not about me but it's about me figuring out the best way to get out of the way and allow him to work in me and through me. Self-control. Guess what? Self has no control. It never did and it never will. It's to see control. That's what self must do. For what purpose? For the Holy Spirit. Hand it over. Let him have the reins. Get out of the way. So he talks about righteousness and about self-control. But then notice, he reasoned with them about the judgment to come. The ultimate purpose, the ultimate destiny of all men, that we all share a similar fate, that there will come a day we will breathe our last and we will stand in eternity. And you won't stand before God to judge him. I hope you know that. Many of us have this idea that we'll stand before God and say, it's about time you start answering for some things, buddy. Why you allowed that to happen and why you allowed this to happen. Why you didn't do this and why you did that. Come on, justify yourself. (laughs) Friend, that is not what heaven will be like. Because in that moment, when you stand before God, you will be silent and wait for him to issue a judgment of his own. I ask you simply this, a couple questions. We talk a lot about going to heaven. Are you gonna go to heaven? If I were to ask you that question, all of you would be like, absolutely. Why? Because it beats the alternative. No one wants the, the alternative. Even if you don't really believe in heaven, you'll still say, heaven, that's where I'm going. But let me ask you this. Why aren't you going to hell? Because your answer to that question reveals way more about your positions concerning eternity than anything else. Why aren't you going to judgment? Friend, if it's anything other than the fact that my sin has already been judged, 
by the work that Jesus did on the cross and that I have been atoned for and that I stand not in myself, but I stand covered by the blood of Christ. You can stand in judgment on your own or you can appeal to the judge that Jesus has already carried your burden and paid your price and satisfied those requirements. You know, to me, I, I admire Paul's boldness, don't you? Like Felix holds his fate in his hands, right? And yet his three-point message, this is not seeker-friendly. I mean, these three points, and Paul's not building a bridge. Paul has no interest in feelings. He has no interest in kumbaya sing-alongs. He has no interest with slowly working Felix and Drusilla into the process with some theatrical dramas and some lights to wow their eyes, distract. No, he just comes firing. Like, Ch-ch-ch. all right, you want to know about faith in Christ? Let's talk about righteousness, self-control, and judgment. Bum, bum, bum. You know what I mean? Like, why would Paul, how could Paul have that kind of boldness? Huh. It's because he knew Felix really didn't hold his fate in his hands at all. He'd already been given a promise, right, of where his destiny would be. No matter what happened with this proceeding, Paul was going to Rome. He knew it. Jesus had told him. And as a result, he sits back. Now look at the way that Felix responds. We're told that he was afraid. Like understand fear as a reaction to the message of the gospel, which we're told is good news, only occurs when a person knowingly rejects what they know to be true. That's the only time fear is a response to the gospel. And we're told, though, that he answered. Just maybe underline those two words. Without reading forward, Felix answered. He answered. Now, while his answer to the gospel message was for the messenger to go away for now, my point here is that indifference is still an answer. He answered. He was presented with the gospel. He was given a choice. And he answered. Though Felix was convinced of the truth, the sad reality is he put off responding in faith, hoping, did you notice, for a more convenient time. He had enough evidence. But this man lacked courage to identify with Jesus, to accept what Jesus did for his life, and then the implications therein. And you know, there are three dangerous realities to this approach. Do you realize that if it's convenience you're looking for when it comes to the gospel, there will never be a convenient time to accept Christ. Convenience isn't part of it. The truth is, is that the gospel comes with a measure of inconvenience as a very nature, as a very result your life going this way, it is an inconvenience to stop about face and go the other. You're on a a wide road to destruction. It's an inconvenient thing to get off that road and get on a narrow one that few travel. If you're looking for a convenient time, it'll never come. But Zach, I enjoy this season of life. Like I'm young, I'm single, you know, the whole Jesus thing like, it'd just be a downer, right? Like, it's just going to prohibit me from really living the way that I want to live right now. 
And you know what? You're absolutely right. It will very much prohibit the way you want to live right now. But, but the lie you're selling yourself is that when that season ends, the next one becomes more convenient. Or the next one becomes more convenient. Convenience never comes with the gospel. The other th- problem with this danger of putting it off is that saying no today only makes it harder to say yes tomorrow and easier to say no. Paul talks to Timothy about a searing of one's conscience. And what this means is that the Holy Spirit speaking into your life this morning, the Holy Spirit speaking, saying, I have a better way. I have a better plan. And you know it's God. Here's your decision. Yes or no? Respond or no? And if you say no, the next time, next Sunday, when the Holy Spirit's doing the same thing, it becomes just a little bit easier to say no again and a little harder to say yes. Romans chapter one, Paul Paul describes people who God ultimately just says, okay, I'm not gonna fight with you. I'm a gentleman. We're told that he hands us over to our worldly passions. The The third thing is that there's no guarantee of a future opportunity. Notice, verse 26, that meanwhile, Felix also hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often, conversed with him. But after two years, Porcius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. He wanted a more convenient time, and it never came. And at some point, Felix and Drusilla are removed. Paul's left. He wants to do a Jews a favor. Historically, we know that Felix had made such a mess during his reign that he gets summoned back to Rome by Nero. Festus gets sent to clean up the mess. And the process of time, historically, we're aware that a delegation of Jews were sent from Caesarea to testify against Felix. No doubt he leaves Paul hoping to earn some goodwill. Felix, the whole story goes that he's not executed. He ends up being banished and then commits suicide. Beyond that, Drusilla, her story is fascinating as well. With her husband being banished, her and her son end up moving to a city you might have heard of, the city of Pompeii, where these two would meet their tragic end when Mount Vesuvius erupted on August 24, 79 A.D., She died in an instant. You never know when the opportunity is no longer there. And in both instances, we have no mention that either of them ever accepted Jesus as their Savior. In conclusion, Paul spends two years here in Caesarea. He's had this conversation with Felix and Drusilla, a conversation he continues to have with Felix, but but we're given his motivation. He's wanting Paul to pay him off so that he would release him, do him a favor. Over and over and over again, Paul is meeting, but this man's waiting for a convenient time, pushing it off to tomorrow. There's a theory, and I'll, it's a theory. I don't even know if I'm convinced of it, but I'll just share it with you, because I think it's fascinating. That during the two years that Paul is here, still his heart burdened for the Jews. 
decides to write a letter to the Hebrews. He makes it anonymous, mainly because they have shown that they won't listen to him anyway. But what makes that theory that Paul, while in Caesarea for these two years, pins Hebrews? What, what makes this interesting in context of Felix and Drusilla is a word that is repeated. It's a central theme to the, nut, to, to the letter. Here with Felix and Drusilla saying, I'm going to wait for tomorrow, for a convenient moment. Over and over and over again, Paul, in writing to the Hebrews, he uses one word in regards to the gospel. Today, friend is the day of salvation. Don't wait to tomorrow. Today 